This program is made possible by members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Dan Savage, Jim Hightower, The Progressive, and Michael Farrow with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. For more on the recession's effect on African Americans, we go to our senior black correspondent, Larry Wilmore. Larry, thank you very much for joining us. Larry, 96% of blacks who could vote voted for Barack Obama. 96%. Now, they are disproportionately being left out in the cold economically. Yeah, he could lose the black vote. Yes! Lose it. Lose. Really? Oh, yeah, John. If he can't get a hold of this economy, then goodbye 96%. Hello, 94. <laughs> so, so e- economy be damned. Black community still supporting this guy. <laughs> Let me clear something up, John. I voted for Obama because he was black. <laughs> Is he still black? I think he's still black. So no matter what, no matter what, the black community would stay loyal to a black president. Well, not just a black president, John, a Democratic president. What? Why? Well, loyalty. We dance with who brought us. All right, look, the Republicans freed the slaves. We voted for them for 100 years. Then the Democrats passed the Civil Rights Act. So that's been good for damn near 50. How do they enforce this this uniformity, this block? Right, mostly uh, peer pressure. <laughs> How's peer pressure? It's a secret ballot. Oh, not in black precincts. It's not, John. <laughs> oh no. See, look. See, John. White people vote like this. <laughs> but brothers, man, brothers be talking back to the ballot box. Hey, you better be voting for the black president, Negro. <laughs> Don't make me come in there. Oh, Larry, please. Sorry. <laughs> They're having a Def Jam reunion. I was working out some stuff. All right. <laughs> are, are, are there still concerns, though, for the black community that are as unifying as, as slavery or segregation? Well, not really. I mean, these days, class is more important than race. I mean, like affirmative action. My kids don't need it. If my daughter took a spot in college from my white pool guy's kid, he has a right to be upset. <laughs> By the way, good luck at Princeton, baby. So do you think black people voting monolithically for uh, Democrats has hurt the black community's political power? Well, of course, John. This is why this is the last time. It's time that the black community's political structure reflect the diversity of the black community. And you're a black conservative, a little gun-shy about joining the Tea Party. Start the sweet Tea Party. I don't care. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, and, and, and liberal blacks, liberal blacks in the uh, liberal community could have like movingonup.org. You know what I mean? Like, moving on up. Is it? Uh-uh. <laughs> Do you think black communities should vote their individual self-interest, even if that means voting Republican? Oh, sure, John. I mean, there's a lot of Republicans I could see supporting. Let's see, um, who's that brother who delivers the pizzas? What's That's the... Uh, Herman Cain. He's not a delivery guy. He, he's the former CEO of Godfather's Pizza. So. Oh, right, right, right. Does he still have access to the pizzas? <laughs> I would assume so. I don't really... 
Uh, okay, I can support them. Maybe they could uh, throw in a two-liter. Do you think they have potachos? I don't. Are you... Are you placing an order, Larry? Yeah. <laughs> Damn right, John. You want something? No, I don't. Thank you, Larry. Larry, one more, everybody. We'll be right back. The floor's a bed. He stares at laughing spaces. More on chairs. Walls and borders. All the orders gone. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpackman.com. Babies died away were tossed in the name of clear blue sky. Freedom has a painful price. No one knows but science lied in between a woman's thighs. In Southern California tomorrow, there is also an election. Congresswoman Jane Harmon is retiring. And now her strongly Democratic district in Los Angeles is hosting a rather strange special election to replace her. I say it's strange for a couple of reasons. One strange thing about this race is that although this is a district where Barack Obama beat John McCain by 31 points, the Republican who's running in this race for Congress is not running as anything remotely near moderate. He is running as a hard right Republican candidate, doing things like calling Planned Parenthood a murder mill, for example. New poll out in this race today shows the Republican, Craig Huey is his name, trailing eight points behind the Democrat in the race. The Democrat in the race is named Janice Hahn. But the strangest thing about this race is that it also has given rise to the most ostentatiously racist political ad of the year. So far, it's only July. It's an ad that ran against the Democrat, Janice Hahn. You may have already heard about this ad already, if only because the words you have to use to describe it are link bait on the Internet machine. Uh, the ad shows black men as gang members uh, dancing with guns, uh, eventually stuffing money into the bikini bottom of the Democratic candidate who was portrayed as a pole dancer shaking her butt at the camera. There's also a lot of threatening swearing from the gang member guys with guns. Uh, the Republican candidate running in this contest, it should be clear, did not run this ad. This is not the candidate's ad. This was done by an outside group that has not yet disclosed its donors. And although the Democratic candidate filed a complaint with the FEC alleging that the Republican in the race illegally cooperated with the group that did the ad, both the group and the Republican candidate are denying any collusion. Now, when this appears on uh, the end of your ad, there is, uh, yeah, with including the fine print there, um, there's no mistaking that this ad is designed to be provocative. It is designed to get attention by virtue of how offensive it is. And in this case, mission accomplished. Lots and lots of national attention to this race, to Janice Hahn, and to the issue on which the racist ad is attacking her, simply by virtue of how disgusting this ad was. The Republican candidate responded to all that attention by making clear that he had nothing to do with the ad itself, but he then focused his own attacks on Janice Hahn on the very same issues highlighted in the racist ad. Someday we will know who the donors are to the group that put out the pole dancing black gangster gun ad, uh, but we don't know yet and voters will not know before tomorrow's election. And if there is something freeing about anonymity, if there's something about being anonymous that frees people up to do things and say things they might not say or do otherwise, what does the big shift of political money this year to identity shielding institutions 
mean for what this year's and next year's elections are going to look like? There's all this beltway hand-wringing, right, over the fact that Republican candidates for president this year have raised $80 million less than what the Republican candidates had raised at this point in the last presidential cycle. And it is striking. At the end of June 2007, Republicans had raised nearly $120 million. This year, it's less than $40 million, at least that we know about so far. That is a huge gap. But then, hey, also, that forgettable-sounding Romney-related PAC, Restore Our Future, oh, they've also raised $12 million of their own. And Carl Rove's group, American Crossroads, just told the Christian Science Monitor that his group plans on raising and spending $120 million. And will we know who those donors are? In some cases, no, not at all. And in some cases, not before the election. Money is not leaving politics. Money isn't going away. It is just going to places where it can be kept more anonymous than traditional campaigns. So if you like the ads running against Janice Hahn in California by some anonymous group no one has ever heard of, whose donors nobody knows about, then I think you are going to love what's ahead this year. We said things, did things that we didn't mean And we fall back into the same patterns Same routine, but your temper's just as bad as mine is You're the same as me when it comes to love, you just as blinded Baby, please come back, it wasn't you Baby, it was me, maybe our relationship isn't as crazy as it seems Maybe that's what happens when a tornado meets a volcano All I know is I love you too much to walk away Herman Cain, running for president I was going to say, bless his heart, but not really <laughs> He's got an uh, idea about how we should do environmental regulation. Um, his brilliant idea is we should put the oil companies in charge of environmental regulation. You kidding me? Well, he's not kidding us. Let's check it out. On the energy program you talked about, tell me about what you would do specifically as far as all of the different kinds, whether you're talking coal, ethanol, natural gas, and certainly our own oil. We work to level the playing field. Right. Or what are you going to do? Several things. Here are the two biggest things. Number one, the EPA is the biggest barrier to more permits, more drilling, more shale oil production. So I'm going to have a regulatory reduction commission that I'm going to appoint that's going to go in and determine how we make things move faster. Some regulations we need. I'm not anti-regulation. I'm just anti-too much regulation. And the people on this commission are going to people who know something about coal, oil, shale oil, uh, natural gas, and they will be people whose businesses or individuals who have been abused by the EPA. If you've been abused by the EPA, like shale oil, I'm going to ask the CEO of shale oil, would he like to be on this commission and give me some recommendations? The people closest to the problem are the ones who can solve the problem. That's one of my guiding principles. That's awesome. He just said he's going to put Shell Oil in charge of environmental regulations. Why? Because they're the closest to the problem. Yeah, they're, because they're the ones creating the problem. And you think Shell Oil and Exxon's going to be like, hmm, now how much money should we spend on regulations? What do you guys think? You think zero? Or should we like kid around and like spend like ten bucks? Ten bucks? All right. Ten bucks we're spending on regulations. What a joke you are, Herman Cain. Look, but as I look at that, I think, can someone be 
really, can they really be that stupid? Is it possible? And I think maybe it is. So there's only two possibilities, right? Because he's like, I don't know, who should we put in charge of oil regulation? How about the oil companies? <laughs> or he thinks all my uh, viewers here and all the people who might vote for me are total morons. And so he thinks, like, I'll make this ridiculous argument. Well, aren't they the closest ones to the regulations? Wouldn't it make sense for them to regulate? And then he thinks his audience is so stupid, and then he's going to pull a fast one on him. I'm not quite sure. You be the judge. By the way, uh, does Herman Cain get money from the oil industry? Say it with me. Of course! He's been getting a ton of money from the oil industry. So it's probably the latter, where he thinks the audience is stupid. Well, are you? It depends. Will you vote for it? We got the right to vote in 65 for African Americans, but many white women couldn't serve on juries in the South. Uh, poll, uh, uh, farm, farmers who couldn't pay poll taxes, they couldn't vote. It was on Tuesday, a difficult time for working people to vote. Right. 18 year olds could not vote. Uh, uh, Keith, uh, you could not vote on the campus where you attended school. Uh, you could not vote multilingual. So the schemes to, to, the lie, to deny the minister vote has not stopped. But we've never seen this bowl where 34 states are moving simultaneously to make the voting less accessible, more restrictive, and more expensive. President Clinton said last week that the voter ID concept was comparable to the poll tax, was comparable to Jim Crow even. Do you think it is? Well, absolutely. If you are a senior, you must have a birth certificate. Mm. You own fixed income. You have to pay for a birth certificate. It amounts to a, a, a poll tax, for example. 25 million Americans do not have a, a, a government-issued photo ID. Uh, students, for example, in Texas, they will not accept a student ID, <laughs> will accept their gun registration ID. The attempt now to undermine easy access to students, we were on a case in 1974 where students can actually vote where they attend school, not just at home. They won't take away that student vote or the senior vote, and of course it make, there's a disparity for blacks and browns as well. There is a section of the Voting Rights Act that grants the authority to the Justice Department to go in and look at laws before they are implemented in the states, um, in, in covered jurisdictions, when they would violate the Voting Rights Act. Why, why has Section the, 5. Yeah, why has the Justice Department not already done this? Why do you have to be pointing this out to them? It's been moving too slow for us. As a matter of fact, the Department of Justice should be convening us to say, here's our yeah. plan to stop the massive assault on easier access. But so far, we have been pushing them, and we expect to meet uh, with Attorney General Hole as soon as he will grant the meeting, but we cannot individually fight 34 states. Well, each state has a plan to suppress, to suppress votes and suppress workers. I mean, in these same states, you see an increasing number of prisoners leased to do private industry work. Mm -hmm. Suppressing work with prisoners and suppressing votes is part of the same states' rights scheme. We need the Attorney General to act and to act now. 
Where do you think, particularly on voting suppression, what's the next scheme that they have planned? Because there's always another one. Because if they get away with this, as they have in 30-odd states, there's going to be another one to try to cut down the vote of, of minorities and, and young people and poor people. What's next? And seniors and the disabled. Yeah, yeah. See, they, we should not let them isolated racially. Uh, when you cut into the student access, there are more white students than there are black students, right. for example. You cut into seniors who most don't have a driver license above age 65. You cut into the senior vote as well, and so, as well as the labor vote. And so I think the scheme here is not to stop the election. It's to shave points. You remember, Keith, right. Kennedy beat Nixon by 110,000 votes, less than vote, one vote per precinct. Uh, Bush, uh, uh, Bush and Dole got more white votes than Clinton. Clinton got more white, black, and brown than he won. Gore won in, in Florida, but lost, in fact, by the manipulation. So these big elections come down to small margins. Mm -hmm. They want to shave off eight to ten points, which will determine the outcome of the election. Uh, do you think you're succeeding, and the others who are working on this are succeeding in getting this issue on the map and, and in the forefront of people's thoughts? I think people are coming alive. I think we did not realize that when, the, when they took over in, in, in 2010, this is the 150th year of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The states' rights force this kind of anti-civil rights, anti-vote, anti-women's rights of self-determination, anti-racial justice. They have a full-scale right right, uh, states' rights movement. We must fight for a more perfect union and defeat this attempt to seize, again, our democracy. These people, they fight wars in Iraq and Afghan for democracy mm -hmm. and seek to destroy their home. It's a contradiction, Keith. But I can The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. I am obsessed, and... It's not like, it's not relevant. Michelle Bachman is surging in the polls, leading in New Hampshire, I believe now, and Iowa. Michelle Bachman could very well be the nominee. So I feel that on my little sex podcast, that gives me license to continue to discuss Michelle Bachman's fabulous husband. And I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you. I've actually been thinking about it a bit. You know, I saw Jon Stewart's very funny program uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, where he declared Marcus Bachman to be center square gay, which he said the day after Stephen Colbert called me weapons grade gay. All sorts of gay out there. Some of it more honest than others. Anyway, thinking a little bit more deeply about Marcus Bachman and the reaction to him and what this is really evidence of for us culturally. And so I'm going to get a little deep about I'm going to I'm going to burrow into Marcus Bachman. I'm going to plunge in to Marcus Bachman in a way that I haven't before. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say no man has plunged into Marcus Bachman before, but I haven't plunged into him quite like this. Anyway, keep thinking about this. You know, gaydar is real. 
it used to be people talked about gaydar and being able to tell when people were gay and people thought that that was just you know confirmation bias or you know looking for evidence of uh, people's you know swishiness or stereotypical gay traits but what we know about gaydar now from the science of gaydar is that it's real you can show people images static images just of a face on a neutral background and with eerie precision people can determine just on sight whether someone is gay or straight just by looking at a face to say nothing of observing the move so gaydar is real but once upon a time a marcus bachman would have gotten a pass a pass that marcus bachman isn't getting today and here's why i think that is you know being a homosexual used to be considered the used to be considered so vile and so disgusting and so immoral and so criminal that a Marcus Bachman would be given the benefit of every doubt. Being gay once upon a time back in the battle days kids was literally the worst thing you could think about a person. So straight people I guess to their credit even though created the environment they did where it was the worst thing you could possibly think about a person straight people went out of their way to avoid thinking it. Even when evidence of a man's gayness was on conspicuous display, straight people would refuse to see it, which explains why millions of blue-haired little old ladies went to their graves convinced that Liberace was straight. But times have changed. Straight people haven't just gotten used to gay people to openly gay people. Straight people have come to the realization that they prefer openly gay people to tormented closet cases. They would rather have a beer with Cam from Modern Family than a glass of champagne with Liberace in Vegas. And that's why Marcus Bachman, I believe, is being ridiculed so viciously by straight people like Jon Stewart. It's not because he's perceived to be gay. Jon Stewart doesn't have a problem with gay people. And it's not because he pings on everyone's gaydar, everyone on Earth's gaydar, save Michelle Bachman's. It's because Marcus Bachman is perceived to be dishonest. He appears to be this lying closet case, a lying closet case who's made convincing other gay people to join him in the closet and the lie, his life's work. And straight people don't like being lied to anymore. They used to. That used to be the deal. You lie to us, you pay us the courtesy of lying to us about your sexual orientation, and we will pay you the courtesy of pretending to believe you. But that's not the deal anymore. And that really kind of is the buzzsaw that Marcus Bachman is running into. Used to be you could be a closeted screaming queen, and straight people would pretend not to see what everybody could see. Not anymore. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, and get your ticket to see Rick the Wonder Worker. Texas Governor Rick Perry is less than revered back home, where he's widely ridiculed as Governor Goodhair.
So he's now on the road with the Traveling Medicine Show, billing himself as the Texas Miracle Man. From New York to New Orleans, he's wowing the Republican hardcore with astounding tales of his job-creating prowess, suggesting he can do for America what he's done for Texas. Hold it right there. First, while the Texas unemployment rate is 1% lower than the national rate, 23 other states are doing even better, including New York. Also, his self-touted record of job growth is essentially the same as Democratic Governor Ann Richards produced, only she didn't call hers a miracle. Most damning, however, is that Perry jobs are really jobettes, offering low pay, no benefits, and no upward mobility. In fact, under Reconomics, Texas has added more minimum wage jobs than all other states combined. Indeed, Governor Perry presides over a state that has more people in poverty and more without health coverage than any other. Meanwhile, the Miracle Man has dug Texas into one of the deepest budget holes in the country, $27 billion short of the money needed to cover the same miserly level of state services Texans now get, even as our population has grown dramatically. Although his party controls the state Senate and has a supermajority in the House, he was unable to pass a budget in the regular legislative session, forcing him to convene a costly special session. Maybe that's why he's now on the road. This is Jim Hightower saying, toward the end of George W.'s right-wing presidency, national columnist Molly Ivins said, Next time I tell you someone from Texas should not be elected president of the United States, please pay attention. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There are two things happening in Rick Perry's political life that are on a collision course. The first thing is that he plainly is going to run for president. He is leaking to the press that his wife wants him to run, that she's actively encouraging him to do it. He just met with George W. Bush's big money fundraisers in Austin. He has not dissuaded a former Republican Party official and some former Newt Gingrich campaign aides from forming a Rick Perry super PAC and trying to get him on the ballot in the Ames, Iowa straw poll. He has called Iowa's, he has called Iowa Republicans and New Hampshire Republicans to lobby them personally. He also addressed hundreds of pastors via satellite hookup in South Carolina, which of course is also an early voting state. Rick Perry, it really seems, is running. And even though Rick Perry may have wanted to stay out of the race for a while longer, if, as Wayne Slater reported on this show last night, national fundraising potential is the biggest hurdle Rick Perry's going to face at this point, he really can't wait much longer. He has to prove he can raise money, and time is a ticking for locking down big Republican donors before they flee to other candidates. So that's the one thing happening now in Rick Perry's life that is on a collision 
with another thing. He's got this time pressure to get into the Republican race for president. Gotta go, time to jump, gotta get in. The other thing that is about to hit that first thing is this. It's his big stadium prayer event next weekend in Houston, which probably seemed like a good idea at one point. But now that he is this close to announcing that he wants to be president, and frankly, everybody is wondering if he's going to be a contender or if he's going to be a Rick Santorum. Rick Perry is saddled by timing with this prayer event and with all of the pastors who are signed on to the Rick Perry prayer event. Since the night that, that, that the present emperor slept with the sun goddess, the stock market in Japan has gone down. It's never come up since. The Statue of Liberty. You know where we got it from? French Freemasons. Listen, folks, that is an idol, a demonic idol, right there in the middle of New York Harbor. Rick Perry said this week that just because pastors like those guys endorse his event, and he's got their names and their pictures and their affiliations prominently featured on the website for the event, that doesn't mean that Rick Perry endorses them back. Then he removed the big link at the top of the event's webpage to the list of those event endorsers. Now today, today, in an extraordinary who-me moment from Rick Perry, a spokesman for Rick Perry says that the governor may not even speak at his own event. He may not speak at the prayer rally. He may just attend. Which will probably come as a surprise to the people who have looked at the group's website. There it is, right at the top. Hi, Governor. Or to those people who have watched Rick Perry's video inviting everybody to come to his event. Or to the nation's 49 other governors who Rick Perry invited to come to his event. Or maybe even to his own PAC, which is advertising it as a Rick Perry event. But now, now that more people are looking at him, now, supposedly, it's not Rick Perry's event anymore. Can't say he'll speak at it. He might stop by. Was he invited? For reference here, just to be clear about who Rick Perry is trying so desperately to get out of bed with in time to announce he's running for president, this is the group with which he is running this prayer event. This is not just an endorser. This is the national spokesman for the group with which Perry is running this event that Perry is now trying to disown. I'm not going to say anything I am not convinced is true. Homosexual soldiers uh, basically had no limits in the savagery and brutality they were willing to inflict on whoever uh, Hitler sent them after. So he surrounded himself, virtually all of the stormtroopers, the brown shirts, were male uh, homosexuals. This is going to be a pogrom. This is going to be virtual genocide for people of faith in the military perpetrated by the homosexual uh, lobby. The homosexuals cannot reproduce, so they have to recruit. It's the only way to swell their numbers. Counterfeit religions, alternative religions to Christianity, have no First Amendment right to the free exercise of religion. Permits, in my judgment, should not be granted to build even one more mosque in the United States of America, not one. We should not allow Muslims to serve in the U.S. military, and we have got to raise questions about whether we can afford to allow Muslims to immigrate into the United States at all. I do question the patriotism of groups like Planned Parenthood. They are subverting morality. Liberals in the United States of America hate the Declaration of Independence. President Obama is half-white, and half black, uh, Herman Cain, is all black. He's authentically black. He is the real black man in the race. The president's been a fascist. He says, I've been a fascist 
from day one. President Barack Obama nurtures this, nurtures this hatred for the United States of America, and I believe nurtures a hatred for the white man. The American Family Association, ladies and gentlemen, sponsor of Rick Perry's stadium prayer event. Even if he doesn't want it to be thought of as Rick Perry's stadium prayer event anymore. try to do something crazy on this show. We try to inform our audience. And to help us do that today, we're going to bring on Ari Berman, because he's going to talk to us about Jim Messina, a guy you almost never hear about, but you really should, because I think it is incredibly telling as to uh, the Obama White House's stance on issues and where they're headed. So Ari, uh, uh, of course, is with The Nation. Uh, welcome back to The Young Turks, man. How are you doing? Hey, Jenk. Good to talk to you. All right, uh, great it's to talk weird. to you. Usually I say good to see you nowadays, but now it's good to talk to you. So Yeah, <laughs> right, right back to uh, uh, old school. Um, so, uh, all right, for the people at home who don't know Jim Messina, uh, tell us what his position is now and where did he come from and what does he do? Sure. Well, uh, Jim Messina was Obama, is Obama's campaign manager for the re-election campaign. He was previously deputy chief of staff in the Obama White House, a top deputy to Rahm Emanuel, and before that was a top aide to Montana Senator Max Baucus. And I had a big profile of Messina that came out, of, uh, I think, a few months ago at this point. And I'm assuming that uh, you want to talk about him because the Obama campaign is ramping up things right now. Yeah, I want to know more about him. Uh, so, first of all, tell me about, I, I loved your article on it, and I think it's instructive to how they're going to run the campaign, etc. So, uh, tell me about uh, that article a little bit. Tell me about, for example, what happened with Campaign for America's Future. Sure. Well, I mean, let me step back a little bit. So, Messina was, was brought into the White House, basically, as Rom's top deputy, because he had performed this role for Max Baucus and basically had tried to keep Max Baucus's opponents, particularly his opponents on the left, in line when, when Baucus was, was a senator and Messina worked for him. So, uh, Rom brought Messina in to do a very similar thing. And what, what happened is that Messina was tasked with uh, being uh, the top liaison to this thing called the Common Purpose Project, which was a meeting of all the big uh, progressive groups in Washington, a very important weekly strategy meeting that everyone wanted to be invited to. And early on in March 2009, the Campaign for America's Future, which is a progressive group in Washington, launched a campaign called Dog the Blue Dogs, basically to pressure conservative blue dog Democrats to support President Obama's budget, knowing that the blue dogs would become a major obstacle in uh, the months and years ahead uh, for the Obama White House. And basically, uh, Messina called the leaders of the Campaign for America's Future into the White House and dressed them down and told them that if they wanted to join this common purpose project, they had to drop the blue dog campaign 
which they subsequently did. And that was a, basically became the M.O. for the way the White House dealt with progressive groups, which is that you better toe the line with us or you will be frozen out of our strategy. And, and that was Messina's M.O. going forward. All right. And see, to me, that's not just important for Messina and what, you know, what he does. And, you know, he's considered, as you uh, pointed out in the article, the fixer. Uh, that's not the kind of fixer I'm interested in when you fix progressives, so-called. Uh, but I'm interested in that strategy, right? Yeah. So the idea is you trade access for playing team ball, right? So my question, one of my questions, I guess, is why do the groups do it? Uh, why do they need that access? Why is that so important to them? Well, you probably ask the, the groups themselves. I mean, at, at the beginning of the Obama administration, it was a big thing uh, to, to be part of the team. Uh, there was this ambitious, ambitious effort to pass all these different pieces of legislation, and the view was that you had to be on the inside if you wanted to make a difference, that if you were frozen out of the access game, that you wouldn't have any influence on the inside. And so all the different progressive groups, by and large, bought into that inside game and really... Uh, took uh, really really what happened is they took their marching orders from the Obama White House and that was a very different approach than the approach Obama talked about during the campaign which is mobilize people from the bottom up to change Washington instead what happened is a bunch of people in Washington sat around the table and gave everyone else their marching orders and I think that inside game really backfired a lot when it came to health care reform when it came to these these issues where you needed that outside mobilization uh, and it just wasn't there because that wasn't the administration's perspective. But on the other side, the right and the Tea Party did have that mobilization, and that's why they were able to affect the narrative in such a dramatic way. You know, Jane Hampshire is a person who gets a lot of heat uh, in some progressive circles. Some progressive circles love her, of course. Uh, and she talks about the veal pen and how yeah. the White House keeps people in order. This is it, isn't it? Well, yeah, Jane termed the veal pen because of the Common Purpose Project, uh, because she saw how this process was working, and she was frustrated by it by by trading uh, this access. Uh, and I don't I don't think really at the end of the day. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about writing this article was that a lot of the progressive groups have subsequently rethought the strategy. They realized that the inside the inside game. You know, they didn't get nearly as much out of it as they would have wanted, uh, that the administration made a mistake in just pursuing the inside game uh, and dropping, really, the outside game, although the, the administration would deny they've done that. And, and the question here for the Obama, the Obama campaign now vis-a-vis -vis the Obama White House is, yes, you know, will there be an outside game? Will there be actual avenues for input? Will it be grassroots-focused? Or will it be much more like the Obama White House of the first two years, which is very top-down, very conventional, uh, very much do what I say or you'll be out of the loop? Right. And we and, don't know the answer to that yet. Right. And, 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 you know, everybody should know Campaign for America's Future is no longer well-received at the White House. I don't know what their status is in terms of meetings and what meetings they get invited to or not, but I know that uh, they fervently disagree with the White House on many occasions. So they have certainly uh, changed tracks. And I think they were among the first to do so, uh, to be uh, fair to them. Um, so now, let's talk about the enforcer uh, aspect of Jim Messina. Uh, is he an enforcer against Republicans? I mean, come on, this is a tough guy inside the Obama administration. He probably goes and cracks their skulls, right? Or could it be that he goes actually after progressives and liberals? Well, 
I, I think that, you know, he has cracked some skulls against Republicans, um, no doubt. But uh, when he worked for Bacchus, it seemed to me that his major preoccupation was progressive critics of Bacchus. That they really thought that those people, uh, obviously, Bacchus did a number of things that angered uh, progressives in Montana and elsewhere, uh, voting for the Bush tax cuts, uh, voting for uh, the Medicare privatization bill, not only voting for those things, but really shepherding them through uh, the Senate and voting for a lot of other stuff people didn't like. And so um, Max really we had a target on his back, and Messina made sure uh, that there was as little criticism of Bacchus as possible. Not only that, he actually tried to get the executive director of the Montana Democratic Party fired, now, which was pretty unprecedented uh, meddling um, in internal uh, party business. But not only that, then in the Obama administration, I mean, again, this was something that Rahm asked him to do, and that was his skill set, which is, okay, you know, you will work with the progressive group groups, but working with them also meant making sure that they stayed in line. If they didn't stay in line, they would get uh, thrown out. And, and we saw that happen not only with health care reform, but also with, for example, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is another thing um, that Messina uh, worked on. And, you know, gay rights groups who wanted the administration to push harder or didn't believe they really had a strategy on Don't Ask, Don't Tell until very late in the game uh, were essentially shut out uh, of the White House strategy on that bill. All right. You know, are you said, and from time to time people say it, uh, that I'm sure that they are tough on Republicans. Uh, I don't believe that at all. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Look, you have great examples of how tough they are on Democrats and, and progressives and liberals, etc. And I've read countless examples of Rahm Emanuel, Jim Messina, uh, Tim Guy, all these guys attacking Democrats. I've never, never heard of them attacking Republicans. What, well, do you have a single instance of Jim Messina attacking a Republican? Well, there is an example in my piece. I talk about this ad that the Bacchus uh, campaign ran against their Republican opponent uh, back when Max was up for re-election in 2002 that was uh, essentially a, a very anti-gay ad. And, and so that was an example of them oh, great. being tough on Republicans, but, but probably not in the way that many progressives would like. Okay, first of all, I was talking about when he was at the uh, White House. When he runs yeah. a campaign for a Democrat... I would imagine at some point he's going to have to say something against Republicans. But when he did, look at the example you give. He tried to paint the Republican as basically gay, right? Ha ha, you're gay. Yeah, I mean it, it did it did work, but yeah, I mean it was a pretty it was a pretty loathsome uh, tactic to use. No, I mean in the in the Obama White House, I mean this is the irony, uh, uh, and you made a very good point uh, um, about Rahm and about Messina and and that school of politics, which is they they seem to be much 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 more preoccupied uh, with fighting their progressive opponents than fighting uh, their conservative opponents. Now that may change. It may be that now that Messina is in the re-election campaign, and his job is to get re-elected. That he will focus all that energy on the Republicans. We don't, we don't know yeah. uh, what will happen. Um, that's the hope, at least. Um, but, it, but at least, uh, based on the, the work he's done so far, he has not been someone who has dealt with pr progressive criticism very well. Unless they massively change direction, they're going to lose. Because look at who they bring in to run their campaign. A guy whose main expertise is hitting their own side. <laughs> I mean, I mean well, what a or, perfect or unless, example. Unless, what a you know, perfect example of Democratic 
campaigning, right? Yeah, I mean, or unless he adopts a different strategy. I mean, I have been, since my article came out, I have been moderately encouraged by what the Obama campaign has been doing. I mean, I do think there there is an effort to try to reconstitute some of that grassroots energy, uh, that power of the campaign back in 2008. I think the difficulty is fake. not only the personnel on the campaign, but it's the difficulty of the personnel in Washington, which is that so much of what the Obama campaign does will be decided by what the Obama administration does. And right now, you know, Obama is what is, is still remains a very cautious, a very calculating leader, and that's going to make any sort of grassroots activism Obama campaign wants to do that much more difficult. If Obama is seen as this very conciliatory guy who's not standing up to the Republicans and not outlining an alternative vision, you miss the third C. He's cautious. He's calculating. He's also just conservative. Uh, you don't accidentally bring in the most conservative so-called Democrats you could possibly find in the world and have them run your White House and run your campaign, whether it's Emmanuel, whether it's Geithner, whether it's Bill Daley, whether it's Larry Summers, whether it's Jim Messina, whether it's all these guys. Whoopsie doopsie, I just picked all the conservatives. I mean, when he does grassroots outreach now, I said in the middle of your answer that it's all fake. Because Jim Messina is not, is not a grassroots guy. The only thing he's ever done with grassroots is mow them down. He's the lawnmower. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's an interesting thing. I mean, and, and I know there are people on the Obama campaign that are committed to trying to do grassroots politics uh, based on uh, their backgrounds and based on uh, the work that they've done. And, and the question will be, you know, can those people break through? Uh, can all the volunteers? Um, I, I mean, I've seen some evidence that uh, there are a number of volunteers stepping forward. There are a number of new donors uh, stepping forward. Uh, can they shape the campaign in their own image, somewhat like it did in 2008? Or will it just be, as you said, a very top-down conservative campaign, but that one that may still be able to win simply because of who the Republican opponent is? And I think that's what they're basically banking on, that the yeah. Republicans will do their work for them, get the base motivated, and that who's running the campaign and what the Obama White House is doing won't matter as much. I've seen this a million times, whether it's sports, whether it's politics, whether it's the Iraq war, whether it's anything. It's called hubris. They think, oh, we're not going to lose. We're going to be running against a dingbat. We say the Republicans are going to be so weak that it doesn't matter how much unemployment we have. It doesn't matter how much we ignored the grassroots. It doesn't matter how much we didn't deliver on our promises to our base. We're going to win anyway. That's the strategy. It's a terrible losing strategy. Last thing, are you watch, okay? The two things that they'll run on is we're going to get rid of the Bush tax cuts and we're going to do immigration reform. Now, they save those for the campaign so they can pretend to be progressive. But if they were actually progressive, they would have done them already. Instead, they're going to say, oh, just give us one more term, and then we'll come and do those things for you that you voted for us on. Yeah, I mean, they've, they had a chance to do both. I think immigration reform was always going to be a heavy lift, but certainly repealing the Bush tax cuts is something they could have done um, and, and should have pushed harder for uh, as part of any agreement. I mean, what's interesting to me is, yeah, exactly, the agenda for an Obama second term really has not been elucidated by the White House. What he would do if given four more years, I don't think they've really laid that out that clearly. Maybe it's, it's too early on. Maybe they're just preoccupied by the debt ceiling. But I do think they are going to have to have a forward-leaning agenda agenda to contrast with the GOP that's different from the GOP's agenda uh, if, if they want to motivate people to get out and vote. Yeah, at this late juncture, I love how we're pointing out to the Democrats, they might want
want to have a different agenda than the GOP. Well, it's uh, not that late, to be fair. I mean, no, it's on. late. It's, it's, it's late. They think they again, like sports, you don't turn it on in the fourth quarter. If you and you well, don't and you don't turn it on in the playoffs. The first quarter. We are still in the first quarter here. Let's no, no, no. I'm ourselves. talking about the term. I'm talking about his term. I'm not talking about the race. Oh, okay. okay. I thought you were talking about the race. No, no, yeah. no. I no, yeah. I get that. But oh, okay. Okay. You I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, you can't you can't be come to the end of your term in your final year of your term and then go say, ignore the first three uh, years. Okay. Now let me t- don't listen to what I did. Listen to what I say I'm going to do no, in the next time. No, of course not. And saying you're going to do things that when you had an opportunity to do them is also not an argument that's probably going to hold. I mean, he had every opportunity to do as much as he wanted with those majorities and with his mandate. Uh, they got a lot done, but I would argue that the things they got done were not as big as they could have been and not as transformative as they could have been if you look at the majority they had and the opportunity they had when they first got in there after the 2008 election. All right. Ari Berman from The Nation, as always. Always excellent reporting. Thank you, man. I wanna fit in to the perfect space. Feel natural and safe in a volatile place. And I wanna grow old without the pain. Give my body back to the earth. CNN has just come out with a poll that shows Obama losing support from his left flank. For anyone within shouting distance of most progressive communities, this can't come as a surprise. While he spoke progressive on the campaign trail, Obama has, for the most part, governed from the corporate center right. On health care, he abandoned single payer and even the public option. He bailed out the banks without extracting any concessions for homeowners, such as a moratorium on foreclosure or a write down of principal. He caved on the Bush tax breaks for millionaires. He sat on the Employee Free Choice Act. On civil liberties, he continued the Bush policies and sicked the FBI on left wing solidarity activists. He escalated the war in Afghanistan and he illegally launched the air war against Libya. Last week, when he shamefully agreed to make cuts in Social Security and Medicare, Obama showed his readiness to give away almost the entire progressive store. I hear progressives saying they feel betrayed by Obama and they can't understand why he's abandoning his base. But progressives never were, in fact, his base. His real base has always been Wall Street. But Wall Street can't buy enthusiasm. And without progressive enthusiasm, Obama's in big trouble. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able. As anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.
I want to start out by getting something out of the way because it doesn't fit in with the rest of what I want to say. But it's just as true. President Obama showed strength, leadership, and even genius by negotiating in private a deal for $20 billion in reparations from BP Oil up front. Now, if you don't think so, just ask some of the people up at Prince William Sound, Alaska, who are still waiting, relying only on the court system, for their Exxon Valdez oil spill payments after 21 years. Well done, President Obama. That was showing real leadership. Now, here is the other side of the coin. There's an old saying out in Hollywood, get the right horse for the course. So, in normal times, we should elect a president who has grace, an even temper, patience, and a willingness to compromise with political opponents. And that is the president that we do have. But these are not normal times. Franklin Delano Roosevelt fought tooth and nail with his Republican political enemies, even saying that he welcomed their hatred, because that's what those times demanded. Well, those times are here again. But this time, we don't have a warrior on our side. We have, at best, an inspirational speaker who floats above the fray, as the Nation magazine recently put it, or worse, an enabler a facilitator who continually gives the other side what it wants, no questions asked, no terms demanded, and sure enough, nothing is received in return. Let me ask you something. Yes, we can... what? Change? No president in my lifetime has tried harder to keep the status quo. Look at his so-called change promises. Close Guantanamo in the first six months? <laughs> not going to happen. Maybe not ever. Prosecute the admitted torturers, Bush and Cheney? Why, that would look confrontational. And as WikiLeaks revealed just this week, the Obama administration hasn't just ignored these torture crimes, they have actively worked against the Spanish prosecutors and judges who wanted to bring these crimes into a courtroom. End the huge tax breaks for the richest among us? Well, that wouldn't be reaching across the aisle, now would it? In health care, support the public option that you promised to fight for? Well, the Republicans might not appreciate that. So, of course, he walked away from it the minute he was in office. Press for the type of single-payer plan that most other industrialized nations have? Sorry, he didn't even allow that option to be discussed. End the disastrous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? Not on your life. Other presidents don't end losing wars until forced to do it. So why should he go against the norm? Why should he upset the status quo? And the status quo these days is the Republicans are openly vowing to give not one single inch, even to so-called centrist Democrats, much less to progressives. They are vowing to fight Obama to the bitter end, 
on every single issue. And that is the status quo he is upholding. What does it take to get this guy to stand up and fight? By now, he has nothing left to lose. And the diehard Democratic Party hacks actually have the nerve to blame the young and independent voters for not bothering to show up at the polls again this year after two years of Democrats kowtowing to big Wall Street, big banks, big military, and big Republicans. You remember that wonderful black lady, Velma Hart, who told President Obama at a town hall meeting last September that she was, quote, exhausted from defending him and his economic policies, unquote? Well, she spoke for so many of us. And of course, now she's been laid off as well. You know, I remember leading up to the general election of 2008, right-wing friends of mine saying, well, you love Obama, he's the baby Jesus to you. And I wondered where they got that. I never said that about him. I wouldn't say that about any politician. In fact, I didn't even vote for him. I've been voting Green Party for years, though I admire Obama very much. But where did they get this impression that we progressives are just blindly enthralled to Obama, no matter what he does or what he doesn't do? Well, now at last I'm beginning to see what they meant. Because now if you stick to your principles instead of to Obama and to his so-called centrist Democrats and to the Democratic Party, you're accused of disloyalty maybe even of racism. Let me ask you sports fans. Are you disloyal when you go out to cheer your college team on to victory, but you see them not only lose time after time after time, but appear to be not even trying, so you start to boo them? Or are you simply showing your frustration and disappointment with their lack of effort? Aren't you really trying to get them to fight for themselves and to fight for you? If the quarterback keeps getting sacked because he hesitates too long before passing, don't you start yelling for the coach to put in a replacement? Folks, your loyalty is to the team, the United States of America, not to one player, not to the current quarterback, the right horse for the course. There have been many times when we needed a gentle, refined, graceful, highly educated man in the White House to bring us together by reaching out to political opponents, but this is not one of those times. Obama and Max Baucus and many other Democrats, but most of all, our current president, is simply a man who is not right for the times. Not that he doesn't have an admirable mission, I believe he does. But it's not the one we need most right now. His mission was basically to be a shining example, to bring us together by demonstrating that a black man could not only fit in without harming the power establishment, he could thereby bring us all closer together as a nation. But that is not the agenda Americans are now in the mood for. It's not the agenda they're desperate for. They are coming to realize in ever greater numbers that all the Republicans and far too many Democrats 
will not stop taking campaign money from and then helping big business get even fatter while it ships ever more jobs overseas, thereby ruining even more lives of the American working class. George Soros, a major Democratic Party donor, if ever there was one, is finally giving up on Obama and the mainstream Democratic Party. He's now advocating that we smaller donors give to other progressive institutions rather than to these current Democratic office holders. Paraphrasing what he said, he said, I can fight and lose, but I don't want to lose without fighting. What I'm about to say makes me very sad, but I have finally come at last to believe this. President Obama should simply step aside at the end of his first term. To twist an overused quote from The Godfather, he's not a wartime consigliore. Now if he steps aside, he can reserve his right to run again at some future date, and then help us heal when this bitter internal political war is finally over. But this war will only get worse, far worse, in the short term. Right now, we desperately need a fighter. If we can't have Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we need a Russ Feingold, or a Bernie Sanders, or an Alan Grayson. We may not win, but there is honor in defeat, if only we join the fight. This is Mara from Pittsburgh, um, and I was calling in response to your idea about aggregating talking points for progressive politicians. Here's what I think. I, I think the idea is interesting and admirable, uh, but I think that the seed of its destruction actually coexists with the source of its inspiration. This is because the belief in the power of talking points depends on the assumption that as you actually pointed out and your explanation is not shared by Republicans and Democrats. Um, so this is what I mean. Progressives believe that Americans in general are smart people, capable and deserving of governing themselves. Uh, they believe that people respect the truth, respond to good reasoning, and are willing to change their beliefs based on reliable evidence. This is why progressives believe in free speech and a free press. They believe that the more people we have gathering reliable evidence, engaging in debates, making arguments, and working together, the better. This is why progressives tend to find their news from a wide variety of sources and enjoy engaging in a lively discussion. This is also why progressives tend not to buy into the idea of talking points. They believe that the important issues are complex and that the debate cannot be reduced to sound bites. Republicans, on the other hand, and this is probably obviously a gross generalization, but uh, uh, I'm going to do it anyway, believe in the power of talking points because they believe that Americans are fundamentally stupid. They believe that if they repeat something loud enough and often enough that people will believe it, even if it isn't true. Ultimately, this is why many people, <clears throat> why many Republicans 
don't actually believe that American democracy is a good thing. They believe that most people are stupid and shouldn't be allowed to govern themselves because they don't know what's good for them. They equate being rich with being smart and believe that rich people of the country should make all the decisions. This is the heart, for example, of the so-called trickle-down economics. This is also why they get their news exclusively from Fox and their ideas from Rush Limbaugh. They believe that people need to be told what to think and that they shouldn't be allowed to try to figure stuff out for themselves. Of course, it's true that many progressive politicians may still appreciate the help that would be offered by such a website in framing their own ideas, finding the right vocabulary to express themselves. They also might appreciate having people work to arm them with historical and current facts that they might have not have thought of themselves. And they might appreciate knowing what ordinary progressive Americans think is important, relevant, and interesting. But unless we fundamentally alter our view of our fair fellow Americans, we as progressives, we're not going to win the talking points war because the talking points war is not our battleground. Well, that's my two cents, and uh, thanks a lot. Uh, you have a great show. Keep up the good work. Hey, Jay, this is Colleen from Sweet Home, Oregon, on a very beautiful day. Um, I just wanted to let you know that um, I joined uh, with the leftist membership. Um, I've been trying to do it for a while, and I just have been so busy. I finally just sat down and did it. So I just wanted to let folks know that here's another supporter as far as the show, The Dangers of an Action, um, that you did on the 21st, uh, I so totally agree with that. I, I don't understand how people could be so blind to this thing. Um, I really, really believe that most Americans are going to have to suffer some horrible type of thing, you know, whatever happens, breaking the chain in, in, the, in our circle of life, I don't know, but I really feel like that is the only way that people are going to change, is if they suffer. Things are just too easy now, and I really don't want to see that happen. I'd like to be able to um, have everybody agree and, and try to do the best they can to fix the problem, um, but, you know, really, I think... A lot of Americans are just lazy or just don't care. And that's that's amazing to me. That is so amazing. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, uh, I'd like to hear a show that has to do with the legalization of marijuana. Um, I don't know if that's something that will get you in trouble or, you know, free speech is, is still okay. <laughs> it must be. Um, I, I don't use it myself, but I have lots of friends and acquaintances who use it uh, medicinally, and it definitely does make a difference in their, their pain um, or in their frame of mind, and it's a healthy thing, and I've not ever seen it be a dangerous, uh, um, terrible thing like you would have if if you were smoking crack or any of the street drugs like that. So uh, I think marijuana is a completely in its own class from all the other drugs. And um, I think it needs to be legalized. And it would be so cool to hear some things about that. I know Obama hasn't really come out and said 
forcefully, well, and among other things, that um, it's something he supports, and, and I think that, that we really need a change with that. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, I'm listening to news again through you. I stopped for, I'd say, 15 years, but I heard about you, and I listen to you all the time, and it's just wonderful for me. So thank you very much. Um, you are doing an amazing job, and all the listeners are just awesome. So anyway, join up, guys. It's, it's worth it. We need this. Thank you, Jay. God bless. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I have a couple of really quick announcements I want to make, uh, important things going on, though. First of all, there's been a massive update to the Donate Your Account system. This is uh, something you've probably heard me talk about in the last few months if, uh, if you've been listening to the show. This is a system that allows you to uh, give access for a limited number of messages on Twitter to be automatically retweeted through your accounts to your followers. This is, so it makes it a, an incredibly powerful and incredibly simple tool to allow you to help spread the word of a show like this. And so that system has now been updated to also include Facebook. So if you don't have a, a Twitter account or if you have both, you can now donate each of your accounts in that way. And so messages, obviously not spam messages, nothing that you would ever uh, be ashamed to send to your friends. Uh, you can uh, give access to allow me to send messages about the show, politically minded messages, and have those uh, posted to your Facebook wall with no effort on your own part. And of course, once you sign up, you can uh, cancel at any time. It's really simple. So check that out. There's a big widget. You can't miss it at bestoftheleft.com. If you're interested, please sign up. And the second thing going on is I was contacted within the last few days by a, uh, a free, freelance journalist who is interested in doing a story on the show. And one of the, one of the things they said that they wanted to cover was um, besides kind of the origin of the show and how it got started, but also activism that it has inspired. And it's put me in an interesting position because I know that it has, I, because I've gotten messages in the past from people saying your show was either singularly or as part of a, a combination of things helped inspire me to get active in my local groups or whatever. And I just don't have a list of those people. So I know that you're out there. I know that this show has been inspiring to some people in some ways, but I have no way of retelling those stories to someone who is interested in, in writing uh, you know, a, a write-up of them. So if you are one of those people and you have any sort of story about how this show helped inspire you to get involved in politics in one way or another, please let me know so that I can have a, a little bit of store of, uh, of messages and stories that I can pass along during this interview slash story writing process. I think it could be interesting. And of course, it would be fun for me to hear those stories from you guys anyways. So that's all I've got for you. I just want to thank a couple of members. Of course, as I always do, Jamie C signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on March 2nd. And uh, James Z signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on January 26th and is stuck with the show since then. So a uh, huge thanks to Jamie and James and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by continuing to spread the word of the individual clips through social networking systems. All that is set up on the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fond farewell to a friend